Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. It is 2-11 on March 7th, 2022. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Ryan Lucas on assignment in Ukraine. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And Ryan, you just said you're in Ukraine, where there is a war underway. More than a million Ukrainians have fled their country as the Russian assault continues. Two ceasefires designed to allow more people to evacuate failed to hold over the weekend. Russia continued to attack civilians. A Ukrainian official said that hundreds of schools, hospitals, and residential buildings have been destroyed. The Russians and Ukrainians are holding a third round of so far inconsequential talks today. Ryan, tell us about the situation there now. Well, it's it's fairly calm uh, in Western Ukraine, where I am, uh, calm in the sense of there isn't fighting, but certainly everyone here is on a war footing. There are checkpoints on the roads. Um, there are men with guns at the checkpoints. People are a little jumpy. Uh, they're wrapping up statues in central Lviv to protect them uh, in case the city does indeed get hit by Russian strikes. But uh, as far as the war goes, most of the fighting is happening in central Ukraine, in the north, um, the cities of Kharkiv and the capital Kiev, um, areas around there are just getting pounded relentlessly by Russian missile strikes and shelling. Uh, cities in the south, like Mariupol, are basically um, under siege. Civilians are running out of food. They uh, they tell us that there's no heat, there's no water, there's no electricity. So the humanitarian situation in many places is getting uh, absolutely dire for for people there. Um, and you mentioned the, the the ceasefires that were set up over the weekend to try to get civilians out of some of the hardest hit areas. Those ceasefires broke down pretty quickly. Ukrainian officials said that um, Russians opened fire on evacuation points. We actually spoke to somebody in uh, Mariupol who told us that um, when the time came for civilians to gather, um, they got shelled. Uh, they got mm. shelled. And there were there were pictures from a, a suburb in, in Kiev where uh, several civilians were killed. They were out there with their suitcases. Um, and they were killed on the side of the road waiting to evacuate. So the situation is 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 difficult. Um, I will say that the Ukrainian forces have put up uh, a tremendous amount of resistance, much more than I think anyone expected, uh, except for perhaps Ukrainians themselves. Yeah, let, let's talk about that, because th- there were a lot of expectations that Kiev would have fallen by now, expectations from, you know, U.S. Uh, military officials and intelligence officials. And... Instead, uh, the Ukrainians have put up quite a fight, and and you're reporting and others, people are volunteering. People are getting out there. Well, I mean, there there was conscription here among Ukrainians and, and people taken into the armed forces, and the Ukrainian military has uh, improved drastically in the past eight years since uh, Russia invaded Crimea and areas in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, but... Civilians have entered what's known as, as the Territorial Defense Forces. These are the, the sorts of people who are manning the, the hundreds, if not thousands, of checkpoints that dot the roads around uh, around Ukraine at this point in time. But there are also uh, people from overseas who are coming to Ukraine to fight the Russians. Uh, President Zelensky here actually invited foreigners to come in and take up arms uh, and fight uh, the Russians along with, well, to come 
join the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion. Uh, and thousands of people have have answered that call and have come here to to do exactly that, take up arms and fight the Russians. Ryan, do you see signs that Western arms are getting to the Ukrainian resistors? You know, it's it's hard to see that. Um, one, they obviously want to keep those sorts of rat lines bringing weapons in as quiet as possible for obvious reasons. They don't want them to become uh, the target of of Russian strikes. Um, but certainly, the 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 Western powers led by the U.S. But I mean, you look at almost NATO countries across the board; they are um, answering President Zelensky's appeal for weaponry to help them. But you know. The Ukrainians keep on saying, and they keep on reiterating this, that they need more. Yeah, and Mara, you and I spent part of this weekend tracking down some of that on the U.S. side. Uh, In particular, President Zelensky of Ukraine held a call with members of Congress, a large bipartisan group of members of Congress, uh, making requests, including for uh, Poland and other Eastern European countries to supply Soviet-made aircraft or Soviet-era aircraft uh, to Ukraine to help in the fight. Um, And it seems as though uh, there is bipartisan support for that, right, Mara? What's happening in the U.S. is there's a $10 billion aid package that's working its way through Congress that has bipartisan support. You just mentioned this idea of getting Poland to transfer Soviet-era MiG planes to Ukraine. These are planes, presumably, that Ukrainian pilots know al- already know how to fly. And then the U.S. would kind of backfill Poland with replacement weapons or planes. But then there's also lots of talk about an oil ban. One thing the U.S. and its allies haven't done yet is literally ban the purchase of Russian oil and gas. Now, the United States only gets anywhere from 3 to 10% of its imported energy from Russia. That's not a huge amount. Um, but the idea of banning the purchase of Russian oil and gas has a lot of support, and I s- expect that will happen. This is not sanctions, by the way. International sanctions would require the U.S. to punish other countries who buy Russian oil and gas. And of course, Europe is much more dependent on Russian energy. We'll get into some of the domestic political calculations behind that in a bit. But Mara, there's a lot of diplomacy going on. Uh, We know that President Biden had a call today with several European leaders. It seems like he's on the phone almost every day with someone. Um, And also, uh, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is set to uh, visit the Baltics. And later this week, Vice President Harris is going to Poland and Romania. What are they trying to accomplish? Well, they're trying to keep the allies together. That's been the number one diplomatic goal this whole time. And Joe Biden has really succeeded in that. Remember, NATO was pretty much left in tatters when Trump left the White House. You know, he called NATO obsolete. He talked about uh, maybe pulling out of NATO. But uh, NATO is united and, a, and, and an alliance needs constant tending. You know, it's a garden that needs constant watering. And that's what they're doing. And on some of these things, it's been difficult. You know, as I said, uh, Europe depends on Russian energy and has many much more broader and deeper ties commercially and economically with Russia than the United States does. But it's been remarkable how quickly the Europeans have moved to change their approach, especially Germany, you know, all of a sudden, you know, overnight deciding to, to... 
multiply the amount of money it spends on defense, stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, and that's, you know, that's what Blinken and Harris are going to be working on when they go over there this week. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, more on the war between Russia and Ukraine. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com politics. And we're back. And in the past year, the U.S. has delivered a lot of military assistance to Ukraine. The White House is, as Mara said, asking for $10 billion more. Some of that would be humanitarian assistance. A lot of it would be military assistance. Uh, Ryan, what does Ukraine need from the United States? Whew. Uh, <laughs> that's a big question. I mean, yeah. it's... it's... And, 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 what, and what they can practically get might be quite different than what they would like, I R- guess. Right. I, I, I think what we have heard consistently from uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in these sort of impassioned speeches that he gives on his Instagram account multiple times a day um, is a no-fly zone. That is what he has been asking from the U.S., from the West, uh, because of the strikes that are happening on Ukrainian cities. Um, I'm really curious to hear from you guys uh, what the view of that is from Washington. I mean, I've, I've certainly seen uh, and, and, and heard concern about, you know, not wanting to get into a direct confrontation uh, with Russia. And Putin has, has warned that he would take that as a direct in- intervention in this, in this war. Um, but is there any sort of bipartisan support for doing anything like that here? Antony Blinken was on Meet the Press yesterday. That At least that's where, where I caught him. And he made the case that setting up a no-fly zone would set up a situation where the U.S. might have to shoot down a Russian jet and all of the implications that would flow from that. So it, it doesn't seem like the Biden administration has any appetite at all. Right. And, and you know, that that is, is not, I think, a huge surprise here, uh, despite the impassioned pleas that we've heard from Ukrainian leaders. Um, I think they will take any and all military support that they can get at this point in time, certainly uh, anything that will help protect them against Russian airstrikes. Um, although surprisingly, even, you know, the second week of the war at this point in time, uh, the airspace over Ukraine is still contested. Uh, and that is something that I think has surprised a lot of military analysts, that Russia does not have complete domination of the skies. I want to come back real quick to the oil and gas imports. In the White House description of the call that President Biden had with the president of France and the chancellor of Germany and the prime minister of of the UK, it says that they the leaders affirmed their determination to continue raising the costs on Russia for its unprovoked and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. One way to raise those costs would be to stop taking imports of Russian oil Mara, how big a deal would that be for the U.S.? And, and and it does seem like there is bipartisan congressional support for it. Certainly, there's growing support. 
What they're talking about now is each country individually banning imports of Russian oil and gas. The U.S. doesn't get very much, so it wouldn't be that hard for them to do this. But any um, time you take energy out of the equation, you risk the possibility of gas prices at the pump going up. Uh, we have already had inflation. That's a real political problem for Joe Biden. Yeah, let me just say I'm on the AAA website right now. Current average price for regular is $4 a gallon. A week ago is $3.60. People are going to be shocked when they fill up their tanks. Yes. And polls polls are interesting here. People say, are you in favor of banning uh, the import of Russian oil and gas to America? Yes. Big majorities. Then they say, well, what if it costs, if it means that your price at the pump goes up? The support goes down a little bit. Now, people, it's hard for people to answer honestly uh, when they've just been asked, um, you know, about about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But there's no doubt that Republicans who have already weaponized inflation against Biden uh, will, if the U.S. bans Russian oil and gas, which is something Republicans are for, they will certainly turn around and blame Biden for any additional price hikes at the pump that that may cause. There's not a whole lot of domestic political upside for Joe Biden here, even if he does all the right things to defend Ukraine. Ryan, you are our man on the ground there right now. What are you watching for in the days ahead? Well, from from the, the, the kind of on-the-ground perspective, um, whether there will be success in opening humanitarian corridors to allow um, civilians who are just getting shelled and running out of food and uh, and have no heat, whether they will be able to get out and seek safety um, elsewhere in Ukraine. Uh, that is one of the most immediate concerns. In the longer term, what I'm curious to, to see is whether uh, the sort of unity that we have seen from the West and, and American allies kind of writ large, whether that unity will um, hold together as this conflict drags out, uh, because there is no sign here that this is going to end anytime soon. Saying that, I will also say that the clock is is ticking here. Um, is NATO uh, and the U.S. are they going to be able to get support in here fast enough um, to help Ukraine hold off the Russian advance? All right. Well, we are going to leave it there for now. Ryan, thank you for staying up very late to talk to us. Or is it now you're just up early? There's no there's no sleep. <laughs> there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. David Zania. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Ryan Lucas in Ukraine. And I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Yeah.